Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We've got a great guest. But first, I'd like to invite you to join me on the 17th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. This is a conference like no other. There's nothing quite like being in an immersive experience on a cruise ship with several hundred of the best and brightest in the world of real estate investing. Make no mistake, this is not a vacation. This is a very intense conference. It takes place over 10 days from March 14th to 24th. While it sounds like a huge commitment in time and money, I go back each and every year. If you want to compress timeframes, if you want to take your investing career to the next level, you definitely want to be on the Investor Summit at Sea. For more information, go to victorjm.com events. That's victorjm.com events. And we'll see you on the 17th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. We are back. Here on the Weekend Edition, we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's a little bit of a different show. We're going to be interviewing someone who is an architect and understand a little bit better what it means to develop a new project from the perspective of an architect. All the way from New Orleans, Louisiana, welcome to the show, Justin Greenleaf. Hi, Victor. Thank you uh, for having me today. Well, great to have you here. We've been working together for several months now on a couple of projects, and that's been a wonderful experience. I thought it would be really worthwhile to get together and share with our audience, with our listeners, what it is that an architect actually does. A lot of people have a general idea of what an architect does, but maybe not specifically. There's so many different constraints that need to be balanced. But before we get into that, why don't we start with, tell me a little bit about your firm, how you got started in the world of architecture, and we'll take it from there. Thanks for the introduction. My name is Justin Greenleaf of Greenleaf Lawson Architects. Um, we are a full-service architecture firm located um, in, right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana, as you mentioned. And we do work from Texas to Florida on the Gulf South and really provide specific values to our clients that might be a little different than we have seen in the past. And we've done that for the past four years. And what it has done is built a great place to work. It has our, our employees, our staff, our team, everybody really enjoys what they do. And in the end, the client gets a great, great product. And we focus a lot on the value of what this does as an investment to clients, as opposed to just hiring for services. You know, my mother was, I think you and I talked about this once before, my mother was the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. And so architecture is certainly near and dear to my heart. And if I hadn't gone out and taken an engineering degree, architecture would have been my second choice. When I look at the work of an architect, it is really finding that perfect intersection between a bunch of conflicting constraints. You know, we're talking about zoning, building codes, the function, the aesthetic, and of course, the budget. And somehow you've got to fit all that together into something that actually works. And talk a little bit about what that really means from your perspective. A lot of times we see that architects, or at least get the blame for, and a lot do practice this way where it's only about aesthetics and then obviously codes are, are a big issue and, the, and then zoning. But a lot of times it is forgotten that the project has to be feasible to not only be built, but then in order to produce revenue for that client. Obviously, it's different for each type of project. We do specialize in commercial work, which generally a commercial building needs to be able to produce revenue in order for it to even make sense to build. So it is a tough balance. We find that we have some advantages to balance these items by keeping them at the forefront of what we do. 
and always having a system of checks and balances to go back and say, well, let's not just design something that looks pretty, although that is a, on the higher level of what we do, we need to maintain that. But we need to always be back and checking and value engineering the entire time and making sure our clients get the best bang for their buck. One of the things that we've noticed, uh, having worked together now for several months on a couple of different projects, I certainly love the work that your team does from an aesthetic point of view. Oftentimes, we, the client, make requests of you that have unintended consequences. I'll give you a simple example, something that we value engineered out just recently in the last couple of weeks. We felt that pocket doors, from a function and from a flow perspective, would really deliver a much better product. But as you know, and as we all know, pocket doors are much more expensive, especially for things like closets compared with your simple bifold door. And we ended up having to retrace our steps to go backwards if you can, if I can call it that, and eliminate pocket doors in order to get the budget back where it needed to be. Now, talk a little bit about that client relationship and what that's like in terms of meeting the constraints. I'm glad you brought that up. A big part of what we do is in the beginning is trying to establish with the client a list of wants versus a list of needs. And everybody wants everything. Everybody wants to be, when we're in the design phase, it's fun to, you know, choose expensive finishes, choose expensive or very nice, you know, pocket doors and things that will save space in the end. But we have to decide as your consultant is to what bucket to put that in. Is it a want or is it a need? Pocket doors, obviously, in this particular case, were just a want, but they were not necessary. The necessary product that needed is just a door that would close. And whether that be a fire code assembly or whether that just be a door just to divide spaces. We knew that we needed a door. We knew we didn't need a pocket door, but but making that decision is something we have to decide what bucket to put it in. Now, one practice that we think really brings value to the overall process is bringing on a general contractor or somebody who does have a very solid understanding of the cost of items and even as they change. So it's easy to look later and put down and say, okay, this list of wants, how important are they? Is it worth $100,000 to have all of these doors or is it worth $200,000 to have this particular marble finish? And, and it's easier to make a decision once we can assign a value to it. So I think it's important to find out what is absolutely needed versus what is, what is a, a luxury. That's exactly right. And again, to use this particular example, I think we probably eliminated about 160 pocket doors. So when you do the math on that, it's actually a fair amount of money for something that wasn't really delivering that much value. Correct. And yeah, and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not even a fan of those particular assemblies. And that's because they break, they're hard to work with sometimes. But when you release space out, it is based on a price per square foot. Every time you have a swinging door, essentially you lose nine square feet to circulation. So we have to balance that and decide, you know, because the door is three feet long and then when it opens, three feet in the, in the other direction. That's a square of circulation that you're going to lose, that you can't put furniture behind, that you can't put usable space behind. So balancing those and deciding not just from a cost standpoint, but from a function standpoint is there's a lot of different ways to really judge what these different building elements are are valued at. Cost was a very large one in this scenario that, that was above the function value of that particular assembly. So you, you got to weigh it different ways. Cost does usually, especially in the real estate investment world, cost usually does you know trump the rest, but it's not always a value-added item especially when we can, when a client can use more square footage in their building. So it's a tough balance, but we have to, we have to always remember the different ways and how we're valuing this project. 
One of the other things that we noticed in this particular project is working with many of the sub-consultants, engineers and so on, who play a very large role in determining the infrastructure of the building, whether it's the HVAC system, the electrical, the plumbing. There can be an awful lot of hidden costs, cost hidden behind the walls that can really drive cost without necessarily affecting function at all. You know, we're talking about things like conduits versus just regular cable and things like that. What What are your thoughts on that? That's a good question because we, we try our best to spend the money where your client can see it, right? We don't want to spend the money behind the wall. If we can use, you know, 30% less studs in one wall and the buildings still meet all codes and pass all inspections, we obviously want to go that route. Now, that being said, whenever you remove something, you're removing something. So once again, it's just how important is that item in the future of the building? We always have to, and it is our responsibility to make sure that the building does meet all codes. Codes change from different areas, right? Whether it's this particular project we're speaking about is in Southern Louisiana and we have high wind and hurricane codes that we have to deal with that you would not have to deal with up north. On the flip side, up north has snow loads on their roofs, which we don't have down here. So we, that's at a forefront. We, we have a responsibility to maintain that. On HVAC, on structural, and all, we, we, we want to do our best to make sure that the building can function the way it needs to function in its worst case scenario without over-designing it. Now, let's back up. That comes from making solid decisions on choosing the best team for that project. That team is, when an architect gets hired for a job, they are typically responsible for a litany of engineers, that being structural, civil, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. We need to make sure that that team has the right goal in mind, and that is to get the client the best bang for their buck on that project, but the building also has to function in the best way possible. We try our best to, to find the right team who's not going to over-design, and that, that team needs to be willing to go back and forth with the client, with the contractor, and with us to get the best scenario because it doesn't always come out the first time. Every building is different. Every building is unique. And as the building changes throughout the design, those systems need to change as well. One of the things that I love about the work that we've done together is that you've communicated extremely well, you know, regular weekly checkpoint meetings. There's really been a very tight process for managing the whole design process all the way through to bidding from the subcontractors. And the team has been very tightly involved every step of the way. Talk a little bit about the communication process, because oftentimes if a client isn't an expert in architecture, and most of them aren't, they don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. Talk a little bit about that process. Yes, um, I think communication is paramount. I think it's key. I think it's something that we focused on a, a lot in our past um, four years or so. And it's really helped people because our clients are typically very successful people, very smart people, but very educated in their field. We have plenty of clients who are doctors, plenty of clients who run restaurants, plenty of clients who are real estate developers, plenty who run assisted living facilities. They know what they know, and I don't know those things. So if I go to a doctor, I expect that doctor to tell me everything that they can about my scenario. There's no reason we should not do the same thing back to them. So we want to keep everybody in the loop. The last thing that we want is the client maybe forming opinions of things that may not be entirely true. A good example is we don't even like to send out drawings without giving a presentation and explaining the reasons behind the design and why we did what we did. They still have a, a, have a chance to tell us 
give us feedback and we always encourage that. But we want to be there and we're a partner in, in every one of our projects. We're not just a means to get a permit. We're not just a means to even get drawings to build a building. We're a means to get the client from A to B. And that is what, whatever there, there's problems along the way and we have to solve those problems with that client. And we usually spend a lot more time on the phone with a client. We have many, many more meetings with a client than I've seen in the past. And I think that it's very, very key to make sure that the client is always understanding what they're doing, always understanding what we're doing because they hired us, and always feels comfortable with the moves being made. And a lot of times, the first few months of a project, I specifically spend educating the owner and letting them know how this process works, right? Um, just the simple fact of why are architects expensive? Uh, we get that all the time. Well, people don't understand that there are five different engineering companies that work under us that are total, that are paid by us through the fee that we get. Once you explain that to a client and they understand what they're getting for their money, it makes the whole process easier. So communication, I believe, is key. I believe architects typically are poor communicators. We're a little artsy. Um, we don't naturally have that ability. But what's interesting about that is our job is to communicate how to build a building through a set of drawings. And we need to be able to do that verbally, graphically, and in person. If you cannot communicate, the whole process is going to be far more difficult than it needs to be. One of the wild cards in this whole process is the plans examiner for whichever jurisdiction is going to issue the permit. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is like and what kind of surprises you can expect when the plans examiner kicks something back? That's another part where communication is key. We typically like to go meet with the uh, jurisdiction who's going to be um, reviewing and approving plans. Our clients can feel upset. This is not this particular project, but sometimes they get upset when when something gets kicked back, and it, whether due to one of their local codes or something, and they wanted to change. and And the client typically would say, "Well, how didn't you know that?" Well, codes are all interpreted different ways. It's left open to interpretation. There is no code book that states this is how you build this exact building. We have to take uh, three to four to, depending on the project, six or seven different code books and decide what's the most stringent code per each building and making sure that we do that on the front end, go sit with the jurisdiction who's going to be reviewing it. These people who run plan review, the state fire marshals, the local fire marshals, the people who are in charge of keeping the master plans of each particular development um, in line with what we're doing. We, we meet with them beforehand because they like to feel and they like to know that they're part of the project as opposed to just finishing 100% of documents and just submitting them off to, to them because then you get a lot of kickback. We do our best to work with them. We want our developments and our work to be accepted by the community and it takes front end work and, and back to communication. It just takes communicating with those people and then look, when a change happens, a change happens and we go in and we have to make a change and we do that keeping the project at the forefront. So we don't make a change based on our time and our fees. We make it based on what's going to be the best for the project. And we're the owner's consultant on this. We represent the owner and we need to make sure that we can get the closest thing to what the owner wanted accepted by that local jurisdiction. And we don't always have the power to overrule, but we do. Um, if there's something that we feel we need to go explain further, that's, that's our job. That's our duty. Oftentimes you're dealing with different government departments, different levels of government who by their very nature don't talk to each other. You know, you could have the Army Corps of Engineers dealing with your stormwater management. You could have 
the Department of Health, and the, if it's a medical or senior assisted living project, you've, of course, got the local building examiner uh, and so on. You've got all these different departments that are imposing their own set of rules. How do you make that work so that you don't end up extending the front end of the project by months and months and months? <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> You're right. Sometimes they'll be in the same building and it's like they don't even know each other. And, you know, we have to we have to be the person that's going to bring them together. And we have to be the person that's going to say, hey, um, you know, you talk to you and then you talk to you and, and let's report back to each other. And sometimes it's setting up meetings with those guys all in the same room. That's what we find. You know, we're in St. Tammany Parish. We work with the St. Tammany Parish Permitting Department regularly. And every time, whether the project is a $100,000 project or a $20 million project, we call a meeting and we get the drainage engineers. We get DHH representatives. We get everybody in the room at one time and we say, this is coming down the pipeline. What can we do to get everybody on the same page? So I think that also boils back to communication and doing our best to make sure that we don't make, because plenty of times we'll go make one change, that one person within that building request, and it might undo something that somebody else requested. And we got to keep a lot of people happy, more than the owner and the contractor. It's the local jurisdiction. It's the state fire marshal. It's, it's all the reviewing entities. So it's not an easy process to manage. And, uh, we're very selective in, in, in who we bring on our team, people who work at this company, as well as the engineers that we bring in, because we don't want anybody who's going to just throw their hands up and, and, and walk away. We want them to work through the project, and it's a commitment to the owner. Oftentimes, I know a lot of developers are scared to undertake something because there is a little bit of uncertainty, especially at the front end. You don't have your zoning permit. Talk a little bit about engaging with an architect at the concept phase so that they're not necessarily signing up to a half million dollar commitment on something that is not a sure thing and getting at least through the entitlement process. Right. So um, this is something that we've um, we've really focused on because we've noticed when you give a client a proposal to do their entire project, they don't even know if they're doing the project yet. And we take a front end approach and we'll even pull it out in, in, in this phase we'll, we'll call pre-design. And we'll get in and do some overall schematic layouts on the site that they're looking at or a few sites that they're looking at and um, run the setbacks, run the, the parking calculations. Because there are people that come in, you wouldn't believe it, and they'll already have purchased land and they want to build 20,000 square feet. And they don't, they don't know how many parking spaces that they're required to have. People don't even know that that's a requirement. They just say, oh, well, I don't need that many spaces. Well, the local jurisdiction decides how many spaces you need. If you want to go over, above, and beyond, you can. So we, try, we really front load that pre-design phase that we're talking about. We will do some mass modeling, some, um, even sometimes some, we get into some design work if the client really wants to be able to visualize it. And what does that do is it helps them run numbers on their project to see, okay, I can build X amount of square footage. I need, we can run some general numbers like parking costs X amount uh, per square foot. You know, paving is X amount per square foot. Landscaping is X amount. And then we'll just throw a building number. Maybe that's $150 or maybe it's $200 a square foot at the building, depending on what type of building it is. And they can run some quick numbers. They do that. That's a one phase. It's a, it's a one fee. It's minimal for what they get. And it helps them make a decision. 
granted the decision is good and they want to move forward, we then get hired to do the project. So we believe we have to put in the front end work to get the job. And we have the ability to really, really help clients visualize it that way by doing everything three-dimensionally, walking them through the project, walking them through the site, keeps going about communication. It helps communicate the design intent and overall project intent for them to be able to make decisions. More than just drawing a site plan or a floor plan, Sometimes they need a little more than that. And what we do is we're not as heavily involved in the code research and the construction drawings at that point. We rely on our knowledge just to get it to where we feel is comfortable in that very, very beginning stage. You know, so they're not spending twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on a preliminary site plan. We we try and really expedite that, get them something that is correct, is right, is something they can lean on so they can make a decision on whether or not they want to move forward. We do a lot of work with real estate developers. We do a lot of work with people who are building owners, not always the occupants. And we want the building to be attractive. We want them to be able to get a good number, a good rent number when people want to come in. We want them to be able to, to lease their space, to rent their space out. I have, a, I have a, uh, an interesting development. I do a little development on the side. And, and I see the value in hiring somebody who's going to help you get there we find is key and has helped our business and has helped our clients tremendously. One of the things that we really liked about working with you and one of the reasons we selected you is the fact that just like you said, you do some of your own development projects. You're not just someone who works with clients. You are your own client at times. And that perspective I think makes a tremendous difference in terms of the nature of the engagement because you can have a tremendous amount of understanding and empathy from the perspective of an owner because in many cases you are one. Correct. Yes. We, uh, whether it's a personal project or our own or a development, I know what it's like to have to value engineer my own projects down. Um, we're currently moving our office uh, into a new space in downtown Covington and yeah, believe it or not, we're over budget. And that's, it's kind of funny that you think we would, you know, be able to figure that out. But it's just, it's, it's the nature of, of this industry, right? Um, you open the walls, and there's some things that need to be redone and or fixed and repaired. And those are unknowns that every project has to deal with. It's not always the contractor's fault. It's not always the architect's fault. And it's not always the owner's fault. Sometimes it's the building that we're working. To be able to put ourselves in our client's shoes, I think is is huge. And to be able to understand what that means to spend that money on a building and to spend that money on a renovation, it's a difficult process. Building a building is very stressful for the owner. It's really a difficult process for the owner, architect, and the contractor. You know, we, we want we want it to be leased out, we want it to move forward, and we want repeat clients. And uh, we, it takes a lot more front-end work than that to, to, to make that happen. I love that. Well, Justin, if folks want to get in touch, what's the best way? Check out our website. It's uh, greenleaflawson.com. On that website, you can see our team. You can see our email addresses. You can contact any of us. Check out our Facebook page. We're very active with keeping our social media updated. So it's greenleaflawson.com or greenleaflawsonarchitects.com. Both of those work. You can get all your information there. Well, Justin, great to catch up with you. I'll look forward to speaking with you at our next design review. And for the folks at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you.